Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're Mumbrella listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Damien Francis, and joining me today to break down the week in media and marketing is Hannah Blackiston. Hello. Brittany Rigby. Hello. And our special guest, Future Brand CEO, Richard Curtis. Hello. We'll be chatting to Richard shortly, but first, the week's topics. Bauer Media embarks on its rebrand. Facebook takes on Modibody and the new way to period. And content quotas are scrapped, but not everyone is happy. Before we get to today's news, Richard, you recently acquired Future Brand Australia's operations from Interpublic Group. Uh, for a while, it looked uh, like a bit of a trend had started with industry leaders uh, acquiring IPG businesses in Australia. Uh, can you tell us a bit about uh, what happened and, and why it happened? Yeah, it's look, it's great to be here today and to, to talk about it and to check in on the news as well. Um, it, it possibly did look that way. I think two is a coincidence. Um, I think it takes three uh, for, a, for a pattern or for a trend. Um, I think, look, first and foremost, the reason I bought Future Brand in Australia is to make the business even better. Um, as simple as that. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm unashamedly focused on, you know, improving it in every way. You know, most obviously in terms of the, the client experience and, and the employee experience. And then secondly, you know, really to learn and to experience something new. It feels like a bit of a natural evolution for me in terms of my career, you know, from starting out uh, 15, 20 years ago, kind of having the opportunity to run a business unit and then run an office and then run multiple offices. Now to have my own business and, and have that total ownership feels like a, a natural evolution and quite an empowering thing, not only for myself, but I think for all of the team involved. It's an interesting point you make when you say to make the business better. There's that ongoing argument about whether agencies within networks are best placed at the moment or independent uh, agencies, whether they're better at the moment in terms of their positioning. How do you see that you'll be able to make the business better now that you own it? I think there's a few ways in which we can do that. You know, One is focus, just having an absolute focus on what makes us us. Um, and, you know, being an independent is only really half the story for us because we still are very much connected to Future Brand. We have those global relationships and we have those global resources. But the, the change in ownership gives us the opportunity to really challenge ourselves to think differently. And in, in just the simplest of terms, that comes down to taking risks. And naturally, there are risks associated with the acquisition um, but there's also the reward if we can get it right. And so there's a, a range of ways in which we're looking to take risks in the way in which we do business um, and, you know, invest in new and different ways of, of doing things, whether it's, you know, new ways of working, investing in our people, investing in our clients, um, or simply investing in ideas. So kind of being able to double down on the market in those various ways is something that you know, I very much want us to take full advantage of. You mentioned risk. I'd suggest that the biggest risk was actually buying the agency itself, and you did it in a pretty interesting time. You'd mentioned previously it's three months to the day that you took ownership. Can you tell me a bit about 
how it all came about and the process of it and also how you felt when it went through knowing the environment that we're in at the moment. Look, when you work with a company for six plus years, six and a half years, you know, you end up knowing pretty knowing people pretty well. Um, you know, have worked together for a long time and so you know, you, you end up having all kinds of weird and wonderful conversations about all, all you know, manner of different scenarios. Um, I think it was, you know, a shared understanding in terms of what might be best for the business. Um, and in all honesty, I think the the situation with COVID, um, in, 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 a, in a strange way, perhaps, almost de-risked the, the situation, only insofar as when you look at the alternatives you know, we now have we now have total control of our own destiny, um, and so to have that independence, um, I think, is a very valuable uh, kind of characteristic of the business in times like these. And you know, then it also enables us to do things um, to do things differently. So, you know, one of the you know one of the proof points of that is the partnership um, that we've just struck with My Favorito. Um, which is a, a global sports startup, you know, who's wanting to not only take a radically different approach to uh, the world of sports sponsorship, um, but also as part of that, level up their brand, scale their brand globally. And so, you know, one of the ways in which we're able to challenge ourselves is, is you know, become the client. And so, you know, we're the kind of integrating ourselves as the global brand team for My Favorito. I'm acting as the role as a global CMO. Um, and so, you know, that's a very tangible way in which we're thinking differently um, around how we might manage our business. So, you know, we, we live in these un, kind of interesting and unpredictable times. And I think we're looking to take full advantage of that um, in terms of, um, you know, how we adapt and adjust. You mentioned de-risking the business, uh, but you also mentioned, of course, you, you did just make that uh, announcement the other day about the partnership with My Favorito. Can you tell me a bit about how COVID actually affected the business in terms of uh, clients, staff, uh, and how you managed uh, that process? We, we've heard other agencies uh, you know, making redundancies or cutting hours or losing clients. Uh, how did it affect uh, Future Brand Australia? So, look, I mean, of course it affected us. I mean, it affected everyone and, and anyone who says otherwise, I think, is just lying um, to themselves <laughs> and everybody else. Um, so, you know, we're fortunate in that we've got some good longstanding relationships with some lovely, smart, intelligent um, clients as partners who value that partnership. You know, we've also been fortunate in terms of maintaining our focus and, and winning some new clients over the past few months. And so we're in a situation now where, you know, everyone's on, you know, five-day weeks and full salaries. And, you know, we just hired someone new the other week, uh, Stephen Barber, to run the brand experience part of the business as well. So, you know, while the market is soft, you know, there is less new business out there. Um, and what there is, you know, seems to have lower budgets attached to it. You know, I think, you know, all things being equal, I feel relatively confident and comfortable with where we're at. Certainly reflecting back on uh, when COVID hit, one of the very first things we did, you know, after all the, the obvious things around looking after your people and uh, working from home, et cetera, et cetera, is launch a, uh, a survey 
um, to track how we were working, how it was affecting us personally, how it was affecting us professionally, kind of the relationship with technology, uh, implications for collaboration, you know, a number of different dimensions, not only to understand how it was affecting us in the context of COVID, but actually thinking ahead to how we might learn from that experience and what we might, what we might want to change or indeed retain. I suppose you're in a fortunate position at the start. We do a lot of work regionally and globally. So collaborating remotely is second nature to us. And so, you know, we felt relatively comfortable about that straight off the bat. You know, that said, four weeks in, somewhat tongue in cheek, I'm like, well, there goes that competitive advantage. Everyone can now collaborate <laughs> remotely. So it was really about pushing ourselves to learn from the experience, understand that things were going to be different um, forever. Um, and you know, that serve, I think, helped focus our effort and energy and also just helped us check in with one another as to, you know, how we were traveling. And that kind of employee employee perspective is really important. That's certainly one of the focus areas for us and one of the things I'm really keen to double down on in terms of the employee experience at Future Brand. Um, you know, we would all say our people is our, you know, are our difference. And so, you know, we were, I really want to make sure we look after them, you know, as employees, but also as people. Um, so, you know, one of the cool things you're able to do is introduce healthy. Um, so it's a little bit like taking a sickie, um, only better, quite literally. So everyone gets to take a healthy four times a year. Um, we all do it together. So no one gets left uh, having to pick up the slack. And it's, you know, a proactive way in terms of looking after people um, and helping them look after themselves. So, you know, at, at a commercial level, at a level of ways of working, but then also down to an employee level, one-on-one, um, you know, we're trying to do everything we can and, and think forward um, in terms of how, how do we give our people the tools and the support um, that they might need. It's interesting you mentioned some of the initiatives you've put into place and some of the things that you're doing, having owned your own agency now. Can you tell me, how does the link work between uh, Future Brand and Future Brand Australia? What uh, resources can you rely on? What sort of partnership is there? How far can you stray as your own independent agency? How does this whole relationship work? At the end of the day, you know, we operate as Future Brand. You know, I've been with the business over six years. So, you know, I understand it and, and get it you know, as just as much as everyone else. And, you know, I've always been a good brand citizen, so to speak. So it's important that, you know, we do everything as we always have done and will continue to do to be the best version of Future Brand. Um, and I've always been a massive believer in collaboration, um, you know, to the point that I don't really don't care who's on whose P&L. Let's just work together to do something that we couldn't do um, individually. And so, you know, that collaborative ethos has always been at the core of the business and that won't change independent of ownership. Um, so, you know, there's still clients um, on whom we collaborate, you know, within the Future Brand family, same deal within the IPG family um, with agencies like Octagon and Jack Morton and Weber Shandwick, you know, that won't change. Um, and so we have those hands-on practical relationships um, we then also have, you know, the marketing initiatives and, and the global research studies like Future Brand Index and Country Index, 
Um, and, you know, we want to make sure we represent those as best we can and market and, and learn from those and, and, and share those insights with our clients, prospects, you know, the industry at large. So, you know, this is one of the curious things about this, I think, just given how long I've worked with the business, it's same, same, but different. And for many of our clients, the only thing that's really changed is the small matter of an AVN. Otherwise, it's exactly the same experience, only in all the ways that I've described, hopefully a little bit better. Um, and that's something that's a platform in which we can grow and build over time. Uh, and I'm going to ask you about how you intend to grow and build over time. But before I do, a bit of a cheeky question. Is there a point at which you decide you want to do something and future brand may step in and go, well, actually, that's a little bit off brand. We don't really want you doing that. Can you foresee that ever happening? I don't know. I guess we'll find out. I doubt it. Um, but I guess we'll find out because I'm keen that, you know, like any business, you want to make the most of every asset available to you. You know, it's one of my massive contentions, bugbears, whatever you want to call it, about um, how businesses run is that they leave their brand sat there is just the category generic as opposed to leverage something so valuable for their own advantage. And so, you know, we're no different. Um, you know, I want to make sure we pull on every lever. So I think they say in the corporate world, you know, in order to uh, generate a return. And so I, I, I'm, I, I fully expect that we'll test the limits um, of what might be possible. But I think, you know, what's important to me is taking risks because if we take the right risks, um, the rewards, you know, make it all the more worthwhile. I look forward to witnessing how you, you test the limits in the future. Um, in terms of the business side of things, the, the clients and where you want to take it, what's the pipeline looking like at, at the moment, particularly for new business? Uh, are there many pitches in play do you feel like you're in a strong position right now? I definitely feel like we're in a strong position. I think healthy is a very good description for where we're at. And because, you know, not only do I feel like we've got a good platform from a commercial point of view, but you know, I think platform is the key word in terms of something on which we can build and a lot of energy in and around the business, um, you know, obviously with the team, but then also uh, with our clients. You know, from a new business perspective, it does feel as though there are, you know, more pitches that are that are happening. Um, you know, that said, I think we've moved from uncertainty in terms of market conditions to volatility. So it's more inclined to be a little bit of a roller coaster. So, you know, it might not last. Um, but, you know, this time of year is, is typically the busy uh, time of the year um, for, you know, brand and marketing companies kind of coming out of Q3 into Q4, you know, as people are trying to sort things out for this year and, and then get plans in place for next. Um, so it does feel that we're on a, a little bit of an upward trajectory. Um, but, you know, from my perspective, I couldn't be happier with the team, um, the clients that we have, um, and some of the things we're putting out into the marketplace, um, you know, whether it's uh, building on capability like Customer, a brand-led customer experience, um, you know, or indeed 
the, the partnership with My Favorito, where we're putting ourselves in a position to actually build out that brand experience um, and you know demonstrating just how we're able to build brands in practice, not just in PowerPoint presentations. You mentioned that obviously around this time we generally see a lot of businesses uh, looking at their marketing plans and, and the strategy and what to do, how to do it, seeing a lot of pitches uh, in play. Do you think COVID has changed the timings at all on that and will we potentially see more action in Q1 or Q2 next year instead to sort of make up a, for a bit of uh, I guess, indecisiveness at, at the moment while we still don't quite know what's going on? It's it's possible. It's possible that it might play out that way. Uh, the, the reason I'm hesitant to talk in absolutes is every sector has been impacted differently. So there's lots happening in technology as a sector. There's lots happening in financial services as a sector. The one that feels it might come back not because they're in a bad place, but they're overwhelmed at the minute is healthcare, where it's just operationally speaking, all hands on deck. I don't care whether you work in marketing or product development or whatever it might be, it's all hands on deck from an operational point of view. So, you know, that's a sector, you know, where there's lots of businesses for all the right reasons, you know, feeling overwhelmed, not because they're ill prepared, but because of, you know, just the volume of, of activity. Um, and so that feels like it might be one that, you know, once the dust settles, might bounce back. And, and healthcare, as we've seen in the Future Brand Index um, launched just a few weeks ago, you know, it's absolutely um, fairly and squarely kind of positioned as, as a sector of the future. Um, and, you know, in the ways in which uh, a sector like healthcare will be better enabled by technology, um, and you know you almost see kind of healthcare everywhere. You know, healthcare is becoming an increasingly important part of financial services. For example, um, I think that's a sector that once it's um, managed its kind of resource hit, um, will be much better positioned to um, you know grow. Um, and so, you know, it may well be that that's a, a kind of a sector to watch, so to speak. But yeah, the difficult thing is every sector is impacted. Um, so very differently. Um, so it's it's hard to make kind of any absolute statements. And just one final question to round up, Richard, in terms of the other sectors that you may think could be on the up towards the end of this year and, and into 2021, what sectors are you looking at? Uh, the, the three are the three I've mentioned, technology, financial services and healthcare. Um, we seem to be doing more and more in those sectors, and, and certainly healthcare in particular um, is a sector that's grown, you know, well before COVID happened. Um, and and it's interesting to see almost the balance between the three. Uh, kind of technology used to be the poster child, but I think probably about eighteen twenty four months ago we started seeing how technology as a sector had kind of lost its way, had a bit of a, a crisis in confidence, lost its purpose. And conversely, healthcare that seemed a little bit of a, a laggard when it came to technology and perhaps for good reason for, for all the kind of the regulatory um, dimensions, um, really picking up in terms of the impact of technology on that sector and almost 
kind of replace technology as the people using tech uh, for, for the greatest good, um, so to speak. Kind of financial services, there's, there's all kinds of dynamics there as that world becomes kind of even more complex. Um, you know, neobanks trying to kind of change up um, how customers engage with their money. But I think in that sector, the ones to watch are the Amazons, the Googles, you know, the, the tech players who have the opportunity to provide the interface. And if fin services companies aren't careful, they'll find themselves as white labeled plugins and products to a, a tech enabled interface that's offered by a Google. And I think that's the big challenge for financial services. You know, mentioned it the other day when we spoke um, as part of the um, the live session that we did together. But you know, the future of financial services is probably not financial services. You know, it's not the best place to look for uh, clues as to what uh, its future might be, just given how it performs well below average uh, versus other sectors. Next up, Bauer Media becomes our media. First up in the news this week, Bauer Media announced its long-awaited rebrand. The magazine publisher, which was acquired by private equity business Mercury Capital earlier this year, will now be known by the name of R Media. That's A R E Media. Hannah, tell us a bit more about the rebranding and how it was positioned by CEO Brendan Hill. Yeah, so I believe Bauer had just a couple of months to come up with a new identity after that sale to Mercury Capital happened in or was confirmed in July. Um, So we kind of always knew this was on the horizon. I spoke to Brendan shortly after he announced the rebrand and he said that our media had been selected from 300 names which had been put forward um, and then broken down into a short list of 15 um, which were then staff helped select the final name. So the purpose of our media, A-R-E media, is to reflect uh, what the business says are its key foundations, which is audience, reach and engagement. One of the main things that I noticed from talking to Brendan, um, who was obviously the CEO of Bauer in Australia and has obviously come across to our media, um, is that it's is a fresh start for the business and they want everyone to be very aware of that. I think he used the term fresh start at least 10 times during our conversation. So I think for a company that this year has gone through some really tough times, obviously October last year, they began the process of acquiring Pacific magazines from seven. That process was not an easy one. Um, At some point it appeared like they were going to try and get out of it, which they weren't able to. Um, And then obviously the sale to Mercury Capital plus a whole bunch of titles being closed along the way. It's been a tough, you know, not even 12 months for that business. So I think at this point, Brendan and our media are probably pretty happy to be able to take anything positive to market. Sounds like a good time to get the branding expert in on this. Rich, from Bauer to R, what were your thoughts? Was it executed well? Does it look good? Is it going to serve purpose? My favourite thing about this is how the media industry now has ooh and ah. <laughs> That's very, very good. Bit. And I think Mumbrella clearly missed out on a great headline there. We um, absolutely did. We absolutely did. Hannah, what, what happened? 
I know, I've let the team down. Don't worry, you'll receive my resignation. Um, so, look, I think I'm not surprised to hear that it took two months. You know, we've done, or it took only two months, rather, just given we've done lots and lots of work with private equity firms over the years. And I have a real love-hate relationship insofar as I hate the, the, the timelines because they're normally horrible. Um, but I love the fact that they're so decisive and, and stuff really does get done. And, uh, and I think that can be a very powerful thing in terms of getting an organization kind of organizationally ready for a, a change like this. Um, and it's, I, I, I do also have, a, I suppose, a feel, if you like, for you know, what the chief exec, chief exec is talking about there in terms of a fresh start. Um, just given um, the history with Bauer Media, um, and he talked a lot about um, this being employee-led, I think that's a, a real kind of about-face in terms of where they were at as an organization. And I think this is where branding can be a very powerful asset for an organization, not as a, a change of symbol, but actually as a symbol of change. And I think this is a real stake in the ground for what kind of organization they want to be. Um, and so at some level, it really doesn't matter what the name is or how the logo looks or any of those aspects, but the belief that you sense from the chief exec and, and his team, um, some of the commentary on, on LinkedIn seems to demonstrate that this is a brand in which their people believe. And, and if you can get an organization to believe in that brand and then uh, link it to the experience so that you deliver that. Um, that is an incredibly powerful thing for an organization to be able to own. And I think will give them an incredible uh, fast start um, off the back of, you know, the, the kind of the history around the ownership by Bauer. Let's ask a pretty pertinent question, though. Does the rebranding of a publisher actually make any real difference here? Is it not the individual brands like Australian Women's Weekly or or gourmet traveler that that really matter here particularly uh, to the consumer are we even really making too much of a big deal about this uh, potentially I think you're right in terms of how consumers are going to look at this because obviously a consumer won't even necessarily be able to tell you what publisher publishes their favorite title that's not the way they're going to think about it however I think in market and to advertisers, to agencies, to trade. I think this is a massive deal for Bauer Media because two reasons, partly because they've acquired a large amount of Pacific Magazine's titles, which I mean, I'm still calling them Pacific Magazine's titles and we probably still will be for a little while now. I think it's so important that they show that those teams are united. I think it's so important that they show they're not just two publishers kind of jammed together. But I also think Bauer Media in this country has such a bad reputation across the board. You know, there was that whole back and forth about them ignoring digital and then embracing digital when it was way too late. There was all the conversation about them slashing budgets with no concern for these, you know, heritage brands like Australian Women's Weekly. I think Bauer Media is almost a dirty word in trade and with 
you know, possibly with advertisers and agencies, despite of how, despite how recognized these individual brands are. So I think if this is a successful rebrand for our media, it's going to give them such a massive leg up in terms of how they deal with people going forward. And I also think, and we kind of speculated about this when all those titles closed a couple of months ago, I think Mercury Capital has done as much as it can to get everything bad out of the way before this rebrand happened so that going forward you think of our media and you think positively and if they have managed to do that and if they haven't got more you know nasty news on the horizon I think this could be the kind of turnaround that this business needs. An interesting point you make there Hannah if people didn't read it I'd thoroughly recommend uh, you search the Mumbrella archives for Tim Burrow's uh, op-ed piece on the uh, sale uh, of Bauer to Mercury was a very interesting uh, op-ed piece and uh, well worth the rather long read. Uh, on Bauer, though, slash R Media, is this, now that we've got one major publisher, if you will, is this going to accelerate or decelerate the decline of print media in Australia? It's a difficult question because... You know, it's obviously a medium that is past its heyday in some ways. However, I think what this year has really taught us is the importance of niche content. And I think we've kind of seen some really interesting changes in the way, you know, a couple of the titles that have been closed across the year, a couple of titles that have been sold off across the year are looking like they're going to be able to thrive with a much smaller team attached to them. As I said, Bauer have made some significant changes across their business with a lot of stand downs, a lot of closures. They've reduced their overhead quite significantly. And that's kind of always been the problem with magazines in this country. I think you're dragging this massive albatross around your neck. And however many subscribers AWW has, however many subscribers Gourmet Traveller has, however many advertisers you can get on board, it doesn't really matter because you can't cover the massive company you're dragging along behind you. I think especially being purchased by private equity, if there was any chance that magazine publishing was going to survive in you know, this kind of size, obviously niche magazine publishing is doing just fine, but if there was any chance it was going to survive in this kind of size, this is what it needed. I also don't think we can underestimate, though, what a tough market it is for magazines. So I've just pulled up the the standard media index figures for July, which there was a little bit of, you know, more recovery than there have been in previous months this year, still back 60% in July. And that's compared to outdoor, which is 65%. So a little worse off, but Outdoor has obviously been in in a much tougher position just in terms of people are not out on the roads, they're not out on the streets. And in the year to date, they're actually magazines that is doing worse than outdoor. So magazines back 43% for the year versus 40% for outdoor and, you know, 30% roughly for radio and newspapers. So I agree with, with this idea that hopefully it is a fresh start for the business, but I think that they still have a bit of an uphill battle ahead of them to convince advertisers that it's still a medium worth spending money with. I do wonder as well, though, how much those figures were impacted by those closures and also by the fact I know a number of fashion magazines across the country paused during COVID. I know they're only coming back into print 
or they only came back into print over the last month. So I think I don't know how much we can read into those ty- into those numbers. Obviously, you know, nobody's saying it's not a tough time for media because it very definitely is. Um, but I am going to be really interested, I think, around Christmas when, you know, traditionally magazines should be doing quite well in that advertising space. I think you're probably right, Britt, that if we continue to see those big declines across the end of the year and into next year, then there's a much bigger problem at play here. But I don't know. I Maybe I'm being too positive. Maybe it's my, you know, desperate love for print that's dragging me through this. But I kind of hope that this is the shot in the arm that our media needed. Next up, Facebook and Modibody go head to head. On October 13, Mumbrella Audio Land will bring sound advice to your screen in a virtual conference that's packed with the latest knowledge from the biggest names in the industry. Year on year, more brands are tapping into the power of audio to connect with their audiences, build new ones, and ensure their messages are heard. Grab your ticket for as little as $55 and hear from the likes of Southern Cross Oz Stereo, Mamma Mia, Group M, Eardrum, BBC Global News, A Million Ads, and many more top brands. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash audioland for more information. Modibody's The New Way to Period campaign video, which launched this month, has been banned from running as an ad on Facebook following three reviews conducted by the platform. Facebook told Mumbrella the platform holds a higher set of standards for advertisements than organic content. Brittany, the story was a little more complex than just Facebook doesn't want to show blood of any kind on its platform, wasn't it? Well, the thing that struck me was the quote from Facebook, because the quote from Facebook, which came from Naomi Shepard, who's their Australian and New Zealand director, said that she loved the video and she loved the fact that Modi Body was normalising periods and encouraging discussion. And I suppose for context, we should point out that, you know, this is an ad that shows the colour red to represent period blood as opposed to the colour blue or not representing it at all. So there was this recognition that that's a good thing and that it's, you know, destigmatizing the issue but then in the same breath saying actually we need you to remove the scenes where there's red color on you know sheets or clothing in order for this to be allowed on feeds as an ad so yeah the it felt like a very conflicting response from Facebook in that sense and I thought that was an interesting part of of this story and then how it plays into the bigger issue which is if we're going to have ads destigmatize things, that's going to create, you know, some uncomfortable conversations or it's going to force some confronting decisions. But surely that's what needs to happen. So, yeah, it felt very weird to me to ask the brand to remove those scenes when those are the scenes that are actually doing the destigmatizing, which Facebook also said it supported. So, yeah, strange, a strange set of circumstances. Some brands are diving into a more real take on on different circumstances, depending on the industry they're in or the product uh, or service they're they're trying to promote. Uh, there was a, the example a few uh, months ago in terms of NRMA and the First Saturday campaign, uh, where we got the very real look at what it's like to drive into a bushfire inside a, a fire brigade vehicle. Uh, Richard, should we expect more type of this very real 
creativity. Uh, do platforms like Facebook, do they need to start keeping up with this kind of reality ad, if you will? I'm not sure if it's about uh, reality per se, but I do think there's a strong argument building for brands having a stronger vein of, of individuality um, in the way in which they go about their business and communicate their message. That individuality is certainly a focus that we see as a strong driver of success in the Future Brand Index uh, launched earlier this year. And so I'm not surprised to see that replicated at, at a local level um, to kind of create the conversation or indeed contribute to it. I think it just has to make sense. And when it comes to courting controversy, a lot of it is senseless. You know, it, it, it actually doesn't add up and it doesn't therefore have a, a lasting effect. But I think where it does make sense, and when I talk about something making sense, I suppose I'm talking from three perspectives. You know, one is things making sense um, because they stack up rationally. The second is emotionally you know, you feel a sensation, you know, you feel a kind of an emotional response. And then thirdly, if you've ever read anything um, by Rory Sutherland, and um, the idea of nonsense, um, that shapes so much of human behavior. And I think if, if a brand can make sense through one or more of those dimensions, then I think things start to add up. And I think you can have a strong point of view. And if it is controversial, then so be it. But I think it's the senseless, mindless controversy that just gives you a bump but no lasting effect. And in this case, you know, I really don't see the controversy. I find some of the, you know, the, the complaints themselves offensive and degrading. Um, I really think that um, this is an important um, position that they've taken. And I'm not surprised to see other brands like Libra um, pushed this not only last year, but they've just launched a new campaign. And so too Pantone um, have launched a new color on this exact point. So, you know, clearly the community and the world at large feel quite, you know, it seems to be a strong, um, strong point of contention. And I think it's a worthwhile uh, conversation to be having. That's an interesting point, actually. I think what's going to well, we, what we've already seen so far is that this uh, response from Facebook has just driven more media attention. Um, there's a big piece in the Sydney Morning Herald today about it, and I'm sure that's not going to be the last. Richard makes a really interesting point, though, that if, you know, and I think we can safely say that across, you know, any of these kind of women's health advertisements, we've seen this kind of push away from shame and any stigma attached with them towards kind of being more real in that space and what I would say about Facebook is it would worry me a little bit being them in that if this is something that we're going to see more of going forward this could be a very uh, real time of them kind of being on the wrong side of history so if we start seeing more brands that interact with Facebook trying to come up with these campaigns which you know are going to feature more red in the place of blood it's going to be a fight that Facebook can surely not continue to have and will surely eventually have to back down from. And then it's just going to look even worse that they took the stand this first time. So I wonder if they've had that conversation and if, well, I'm sure they have had that conversation, but I wonder if they're prepared for what happens when more of these types of campaigns come forward. I'm interested very quickly, Hannah, 
Britt, was the campaign itself good? Did, did you think it uh, did what it needed to do? Um, yeah, absolutely. I mean, what it meant to do was destigmatize, and the fact that even just representing period blood as red is controversial shows that, you know, it's doing that. The fact that Facebook has pushed back in the way that it has, I think, almost proves the point further. And I think to Hannah's point as well, it feels a little bit strange to be talking about this issue and whether or not it's allowed to be present on a platform that has received pretty widespread and and valid, you know, criticism for allowing hate speech and violence and, you know, live streams that are that are very violent and the reaction that those things have had. So I think Hannah's right that, you know, this was a really good opportunity to kind of take a stand for Facebook as well. Um, I note that YouTube had a similar reaction to Facebook at first and then allowed the ad to keep running. So, you know, if algorithms are going to pick this kind of stuff up and flag it, it's up to the humans then reviewing it to make a call. And if if Facebook's call continues to be this, I think it proves the point further, which is that we're still not in a place where this can be discussed openly, can be advertised openly. And these advertisements are for women. They're not for men, you know. <laughs> Next up, the government reviews content quotas for TV and streaming. It was announced this week that from next year, FTA networks would no longer need to air at least 260 hours of children's programming and 130 hours of preschool programming annually. On top of that, the content quotas across the board have been simplified, meaning the 55% of local content can be a mix of drama, children's content or documentaries. Brittany, the Morrison government has scrapped the content quotas for children's TV most of the industry would have seen the story yesterday, which got main media coverage as well. But what was the reaction like from the networks? Unsurprisingly positive, of course. I mean, this this issue has been on the network's radar for a long time, particularly Nine and Seven have been very vocal, pushing back against content quotas. James Warburton from Seven went so far as to say that he would very happily breach his content quota obligations from next year, especially when it came to children's content. So the fact that the government has kind of come to the party insofar as the free-to-air networks are concerned was definitely welcomed across the board. I mean, children's content is not profitable. You know, there's very strict rules around what you can advertise during kids' TV shows there at certain times of the day. And so I'm sure that, you know, networks are going to really shirk a lot of their kids' content if it means that they can put stuff in their place that they can get more advertising dollars for. So I do think that, yeah, it will definitely lead to a dip in kids' content on free-to-air TV. So what does this actually mean for the market, particularly for brands and marketers investing in children's programs, of which, of course, there are very strict rules around that, but Will we see a difference in the market now or a different way of brands and marketers thinking about the opportunity with children's TV? I think a lot of the slack when it comes to kids' TV is going to be left to the ABC, which of course is, you know, not a commercial network that we're talking about in the context of advertising. So I definitely think it's going to change the market. I definitely think it's going to change how marketers have to think if they're advertising kids' products 
because, you know, I think all of the networks have said that they still care about kids' shows but are widely welcoming the changes and that quota is the main change. They've still got, you know, the same overall obligations. It's just that they can kind of pick and choose which content they want to make up that overall 55% threshold. So, yeah, I think it will change for sure. I wonder, I can remember when um, we were talking, obviously 10 Shake, 10's uh, other multi-channel, which during the day targets children and at nighttime is MTV content. When that launched, one of the things that was made pretty clear to me was that they're going to be trying to target brands who are primarily advertising on the internet, so primarily advertising on Google um, or across Facebook. And while that definitely covers, you know, the stuff that was going to be on during MTV, it also covers the stuff that was going to be on during the day. And so I do wonder, I would be interested to know how many advertisers or what kind of, you know, slice of the advertising pie we're actually talking about here, because I don't know whether this is going to cause that big of a shift because surely, you know, if you're advertising children's stuff, you're still just going to put it on during times when you know children are watching TV anyway, which is, you know, during dinner time or after dinner or whenever. Um, So, yeah, it would be really interesting, I think, to see what the advertiser response to this is. Obviously, we know what content creators' responses to this will be and we know what the network's response will be. But I think, um, yeah, that advertising bit in the middle is kind of, the really interesting part that we don't quite have the answer to yet. I think Hannah makes a good point there around what are the numbers and what's the real impact um, and not to you know do it a service to the importance of uh, children's programming, but it, it may very well be much ado about nothing. But I think the bigger issue at play is... Um, you know, just what this says around the imbalance of different kind of old versus new world technologies. And certainly in how it was reported yesterday on Mumbrella, what struck me was how everyone had dug in on their own position and and was very me, me, me about it. I think the follow-up this story today um, provided a new perspective. And I think in particular, um, I think it was the chief executive uh, Screen Australia, yeah, Matthew Diener, um, described uh, the, the, the situation around the poly, policy responses disjointed and incomplete. And I think, you know, those two words really do have to kind of really do set off alarm bells in terms of on a whole range of issues as our world changes and evolves. How do we make sense of competing interests and, you know, the imbalance that exists? And so, you know, regardless of whether you know, this is a meaningful difference or, or maybe a, a kind of an insignificant one. I do think it just sets off alarm bells as to how do we manage the, the regulatory dy- dy- dynamics around this kind of stuff. And no one seems to have a particularly good handle on leading that. And I think it's an area that requires much improved leadership. Disjointed and incomplete is an interesting quote that you've got there because there was also the request for streaming platforms to report on their investment in local programming, uh, but without strict quotas. Uh, was there any word on how that went down? Look, I think for the TV networks, that's something that they're definitely going to keep pushing on. The fact that, as Rich pointed out, there is still 
kind of rule for one you know mode of television which is free to air another rule for another which is these streaming platforms and the continued rise of them particularly in this market so you know James Warburton Hugh Marks at nine Bev McGarvey at 10 I think all want streaming platforms to be regulated like they are and so do the so does the screen industry I mean Interestingly, I sat in on a, you know, screen industry uh, event that happened yesterday afternoon after this announcement. And it was originally scheduled before the announcement came through and they were going to kind of be asking the Prime Minister directly for a bunch of stuff. And then the government kind of got in and and laid out what the changes were. And really it was kind of a disappointing and disappointed response to that. So Reese Muldoon, who's a local actor and writer and director, he was very vocal about what it means for the screen industry and very interestingly pointed out, well, hang on a second, these streaming platforms are basically paying no tax in this market. We're not asking anything from taxpayers in terms of, you know, this requires money. All we're asking for is legislative change, which will mean that the streaming platforms have to also give something back. So I think how the streaming platforms continue to fare in all of this and how much pressure the government puts on them is definitely the thing to keep an eye out on. It strikes me so much how much this conversation is so similar to the news media bargaining code conversation. And I think it's really interesting that in this case, you're not seeing the big media companies argue for equality. I mean, you are, but it's not their businesses that are going to be hurt. It's the screen businesses that are going to be hurt. It's the content creators who are going to be hurt. So I think it's quite interesting that the news media bargaining code has become basically a daily conversation that we have to have at this point. Whereas this, up until this week, has been very niftily swept under the rug by a lot of people. And I think what that kind of shows you is the difference depending on who's arguing what side. Um, But yeah, it does still kind of surprise me that the streaming platforms haven't had some sort of quota put on them. Although I do wonder if like the news media bargaining code, if we've allowed them to get too big and we've allowed this to go on for too long and now it's kind of impossible to tap them on the shoulder and say, oh, hey, we also need some local content from you. And that's it for this week. But before we go, Mumbrella 360 Reconnected is just around the corner. From the highly anticipated fireside chat with Sir Martin Sorrell to leading voices from Magnite, Junkie Media and McDonald's, we've already unveiled 45 incredible speakers for Mumbrella 360 Reconnected and they're set to answer the industry's most burning questions. Book your tickets now from $69 and join your peers for four jam-packed virtual days of learning, inspiration and networking on November 17 to 20. Go to mumbrella.com.au forward slash mumbrella360 to book your tickets. That's it for this week. Thank you to Richard Curtis from Future Brand and to Hannah and Brittany. Thank you. Thanks, Damo. Thanks, folks.